Welcome to episode 10 with Dory Langevin. Where meditation meets daily life, this is the Meditation Freedom Podcast. May the sun bring you new energy by day. May the moon softly restore you by night. May the rain wash away your worries. May the breeze blow new strength into your being. This is an Apache blessing and I really enjoy this blessing. I lifted it off the next guest's website. She posted it there because clearly she enjoys that blessing. And today was a very rainy day in the desert here. It's still dripping outside the window here. And I took a nice walk up the mountain here and let the rain wash away my worries today. So that felt wonderful to come back. And I was completely soaked, just like the desert. And uh, back to get to work, to work on this podcast. Well, today's interview is going to be with Dory Langevin, a Vipassana teacher. Dory began to study and practice Vipassana meditation in, back in 1997 with Tara Brock and the Inside Meditation Community of Washington where she also served on the Teachers' Council. Dory also co-teaches residential retreats at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, as well as the Inside Meditation Society. And she has a special interest in, the, in what she calls the dance between the Dharma, addiction, recovery, and emotional healing, grounded in the sacred feminine and embodied presence, and then integrating creative expression and relational Dharma into retreats. She also volunteers at the Airway Heights Correction Center in Washington State, where she teaches a weekly mindfulness meditation class through the Religious Activity Center. Dory's degrees in creative arts therapy and clinical psychology, as well as holotropic breathwork, informs and guides her work with others. And one of the things she does is working with groups and individuals using experimental mind-body-spirit approaches for healing and creating ceremonies for life passages including mindfulness, loving-kindness, compassion practices. And then she also does guided imagery, artwork, ritual, psychodrama, emotional release work, and holotropic breathwork. And as you'll hear in the interview, Dory herself has been in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction since August 1980. So she also serves as an advisory member, council member for a Buddhist recovery network. And then to use her own words from her own website, she says, My passion is to create opportunities to share the radical and useful practices of mindfulness with anyone interested in calming their minds and opening their hearts. The great simplicity and power of living wakefully, lovingly, and wisely is needed right now as we meet our own personal challenges of confusion, fear, anger, addiction, and self-centeredness, as well as meeting the global challenges of poverty, hunger, violence, war, and oppression. As we learn to stop the war within us, we will naturally influence the discord in our families, our communities, our country, and the whole of our precious world. Meditation is activism. We learn to put compassion into action from a place of clear seeing and equanimity. As Indian political and spiritual leader Mahatma Gandhi advised, you must be the change you want to see in the world. She also uses a quote from Marion Williamson from her book In Return to Love where she says, we are meant to shine as children do. It's not just some of us, it's in everyone. 
and as we let our own light shine, we subconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Here is the interview with Dory Langevin. Thank you so much, Dory, for joining me in this conversation. What brought you to meditation? What brought you to this path? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about the questions, actually, that Laurie sent to me originally when she kind of introduced us. Mm -hmm. And I've been pondering them um, yesterday and today, and it's brought a lot to the surface. So I'm appreciating just the opportunity to do this as a way of reflecting on my practice and the trajectory of my practice. And I think of practice in a kind of broad brush way. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I realized that I'm rather eclectic in my um, approach and actually came to Buddhism somewhat late in my life. Um, I came to Buddhism actually around 19, or got introduced to it around 1985. So it's been 20 years. So I was 43 years old at the time. And, um, and so the practice that I had been engaged with up until then really was the practice of recovery from alcoholism, sort of mm -hmm. the Western sadhana, the 12 steps, the sangha that was involved, the fellowship that was involved, the service that was involved. And so that was kind of my baseline for practice. And it was a very in vivo practice as opposed to an in vitro practice, which is when I think about my practice or practice in general, I see it in those two frames of reference. So Maybe you can elaborate, elaborate yeah, a little bit sure. on that. So the... The, um, the in vitro is kind of in the lab, mm -hmm. meaning that's sort of the translation like in the laboratory. That's the formal practice, the, 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 the practice in silence, whether it's with sitting or walking or qigong, or, but it's really an inward focus kind of practice. And then there's the in vivo practice, which is life. The marketplace, yeah. The whole, you know, life is the meditation hall. I mean, right. I can spend an hour in formal practice a day in various forms, which I'm happy to talk about. Or, and then there's all these other hours of the day where I can still be deepening presence and practicing sati and practicing metta and, you know, being really aware of body and heart and mind and dukkha when it arises and, you know, when I'm out of alignment with, um, with the characteristics, you know, when I'm really not recognizing that this is all changing and I'm grasping. And so there's all of those ways in which life, the marketplace, creates the opportunity to actually live the Buddha Dharma, right. live the Dharma. So it what brought me to this, this particular form, which I think was the question, mm -hmm. how did I get sort of get here, is the an encounter during a month long at Esalen in California, which was on the spiritual, um, the mystical path, addiction and attachment, and. Stan and Christina Groff were the um, the hosts of that, and they would invite their friends to come and teach. And there would be there were they invite people to come for a month, and then they would invite teachers. And so Jack Cornfield was one of them. Hmm. And I heard Jack describe the Four Noble Truths, and I knew viscerally that experience from my lived experience of addiction and recovery. It was just like, oh, right, addiction, recovery, suffering, freedom from suffering. It was so palpable. And so I said, oh, and, I, and I'd never heard this. I'd never heard any of these teachings. And it, and 
it awoke in me. A, um, it was like, oh, here's a frame of reference. And practices, specific practices of, and he taught us um, mindfulness, Vipassana, and he taught us um, loving kindness practice, metta practice. And so it was like what I had not been able to find within the um, recovery community, even though one of the steps is um, came uh, is practicing with prayer and meditation. There was a lot of instruction around prayer, but really none around meditation. And so all of a sudden, there was these practices that had this history. And because Jack is Jack, you know, he's very um, he's a good salesman. You know, when he <laughs> when he you know he teaches the Dharma, it's like you want to buy it, you want it. It's like he just has a way, or at least it resonated with me. And so I was really quite excited to find that. I was in the Bay Area at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I made my attempt to practice. And I checked out what was available. And at that point in 1985, even Gil Fronsdale, who has lots going on in the peninsula now, I was living in the peninsula, he only had like one class a, night, a week. And I, had, I worked that night. So I sat at my, my altar, I tried to practice, and I tried to read, but I didn't have a sangha, and I didn't have a teacher, which meant I was, you know, winging it, which is kind of the way I've lived my life. But um, it, took, it took a number of um, years to actually um, find a sangha. And that really did not happen formally until 1997. I had, um, and this happened again with Jack as the, the the centerpiece for that. I had returned from living in Russia and was living in Maryland, but said to my husband, "We have to go back to the Bay Area because that's where my friends and family are frequently." <laughs> and he said, "Fine." So, and I said, "You know, there's a day long happening when we're going to be there. Let's go to Spirit Rock and go to a day long, which introduced my husband Ted to the practice formally." And then was chatting with him and, and um, Wes Nisker. And Wes said, where are you living now? And I said, well, I'm living in Maryland. He goes, you're kidding. He says, have you heard of Tara Brock? I said, no. I just, I've only been back from Russia, you know, several months. And he goes, oh, she's right in your backyard. So we get back and we look up Tara Brock. And I talked to her on the phone, found out where she was teaching. Went to a class when there was maybe, I don't know, 35, 40 people in the class immediately resonated with her teachings, immediately. And then progressed through that, which was the beginning of Insight Meditation Community of Washington, which wasn't even an entity yet. It was only, it was a thought that was coming into form. And um, got very involved with the Sangha by volunteering and going to retreats and going to class. So suddenly there was a teacher and a group. You know that old phrase, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Right. And so it just felt like being home. And that made it very easy to practice, because my husband and I practiced together. We got involved with committees. He got on the board. I ended up being the administrative assistant, um, or administrative coordinator, I think it was called. So we just, we like, it was like diving in head first, and being able to have all of the uh, stimulation and input and support, and then being of service, volunteering, and then eventually working for MCW. 
And, and then in terms of sangha or community, what what are some of the advantages for someone who who doesn't necessarily have a community to practice with? If they're thinking about doing that, how would they see that as as benefiting them to join a community? In 1985, when I first got introduced, there was no sangha except where you showed up brick and mortar sangha. You know, you showed up with other people in the same room. Mm-hmm. And what's true now is that that's available in some areas, in many areas. There's small sitting groups, there's, you know, big retreats, there's everything in between. But there is also this virtual sanghas that are happening. The ways that people can plug into Dharma talks, can plug into, um, if they don't have something locally, to, like I just saw something on the, the email this morning. James Berez is doing a, a song, a morning, um, class online. You know, you can just plug into it. Yeah. So the the sense that we have to have it in the physical form, I think, is becoming less and less um, what people can access, and more the sense that the virtual reality, as much as it has you know shadow sides to it, offers the opportunity for people to listen, to ask questions, to ponder together to actually sit in silence together, and to feel the support. You know, I think it's, it, I mean, I love sitting with people. Right. You know, like right next to me, hearing them breathe, <laughs> knowing we're all in this together. There's a there's an embodied presence quality of that that, that can't be replaced with right. the virtual reality. But I'm just, I'm glad that this is happening the way that it is so that people who don't have access. Right, who don't have that option, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's not an, that you know it doesn't need to be a barrier right. anymore. And when you joined that, at what point did you realize this was going to be something you wanted to do the rest of your life? That it was a process rather than some people might think, oh, I do that for a year and then I'm graduated or then I'm, I have whatever mm-hmm. level they're looking for. How did that go in your mind? Well, I think of it like weaving a tapestry. So. Buddhism came in as a very strong thread into the tapestry of my life that already had other threads in it that were spiritual practices. You know, the, the recovery practice, some Native American tradition, some even Holy Mother tradition um, in terms of the sacred feminine. So it, it came, and it, those that weave in and continue to create a tapestry that feels alive for me stay. So it wasn't the sense like, oh, this is gonna, this is just temporary. It was more like, oh, this is like being home. These practices, I feel alive, enlivened by them. I feel led by them. They're onward leading, and I can't imagine that this won't be part of my life up until the moment that I take my last breath. In fact, I'm hoping that these practices in particular will be my uh, a kind of shepherding force, a guiding force through the um, well, currently older age and when sickness arises and death. Is that mm-hmm. I'm tuning my mind, I'm tuning my heart in a way that when those moments of difficulty arise, that I'll be able to stay present. You know, that, that I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, maybe on the, the wings of the, the years of practice at those moments. 
Yeah, yeah. So in a way, you're you're priming yourself for those difficult moments with the practice that you have, so yeah. that when they when something like that comes up, um, you have this practice that just kind of automatically kicks in the gear um, and, and helps you out. Uh, maybe you have an example of something like that where where your practice has come in and you've noticed how it changed the whole situation or de-escalated the situation or something like that. Yes, I have a very specific example um, in June, actually June 10th of 2013. So over a year and a half ago, um, when I was on the back of our Harley-Davidson motorcycle, <laughs> my husband drove he, he's, he's driving it, I'm riding, I'm the passenger. And we were on a long trip coming back from, I started back east. And um, it was a beautiful morning in Albuquerque and very, 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 very hot. This was um, summer, as I said. And um, we got on the bike to head toward, we thought we were going to Canyon de Chez for a couple of days to hike. That's what we thought the plan was. And so we moved through the morning traffic of um, downtown Albuquerque and then stopped at a gas station on the outskirts, got back on the bike, and, um, you know, again, thought we were heading to Canyon de Chez. And what happened instead um, was as we entered the freeway, came onto the freeway, um, the back tires started to go. Oh. And, I mean, I that's that's a... Uh, you know the perception of that, that happening. I remember is we got back. We got back on the freeway. I did what I usually do, which is I petitioned the sky balconies to be able to move through space, and the the um, Earth Mother to thank her for being uh, be able to to ride across her with the kind of joke helmets you know to the sky, rubber to the road, helmets to the sky. <laughs> and then the next thing that I um, am aware of is the back of the motorcycle um, swaying, you know, shifting side to side. And I'm on the back with all of the weight, all of the, the baggage is on the back. And there's a couple of those, and the thought that arose in my mind, the only thought that arose in my mind was, we are going down because there is no other way out of this. Hmm. There's no, and what that meant in that moment was, he can't pull this together. There's nothing that Ted can do to stop this from happening. I didn't know what was happening except we you know, assumed it was the back tire going out. And that was the only thought that arose in my mind. This is how it is. And I was very grateful, not at that moment. It was, it was the, the purity of what my mind was, was. That was the only thought. There was the absence of fear. People said to me, oh, so you weren't afraid you were going to die? I said, it didn't even occur to me. None of that was there. It was just, this is how it is. And um, Well, this probably happened really fast, too, I imagine. I would say within probably 10 seconds. I'm sort of feeling my body. That's, I can still feel that, <laughs> that swirl. Yeah. And, yeah, so it was very... It was very quick. And then what proceeded from there was, you know, they were broke. I mean, there was a lot of trauma to the body, broken bones. You know, I kind of came to, although I never passed out, in the uh, x-ray in ER. And 
And then there was the whole way the practice helped me stay connected to my body, notice when there is pain, notice when there was mental anguish on top of the physical pain, and knowing that that was optional. You know, that the that second noble truth, that the mental anguish is is optional. The pain is going to happen. It's there. And so to use the practice to to be able to work with the mental, the physical pain that was happening, and then to work with all of the recovery process physically was very powerful. It was a whole, I used a lot of metta practice. Um, I didn't do sitting practice because I could not sit. Right. You know, I did a lot of laying down practice. I did walking as I could. But I pulled on all of the resources over the years of developing practice to be able to work with this one of the heavenly message, which is illness, accident, yeah. without personalizing it. It's not personal. And then, of course, it created tremendous amount of gratitude right. to even be alive. Yeah. So you still had the moments of pain and maybe a little bit of, you know, agony almost, you know, if something gets, is really hurting, but you didn't have the mental baggage on top of that is kind of what you're saying, you know, the, the mental weather, as, as you mentioned it somewhere in, in one of your writing. Yes, the whole, you know, adding on, it's always going to be like this, it shouldn't have happened. There was none, there was no, why, why did this happen? It shouldn't have happened. We just took the bike to the, you know, there's all the ways in which you can fight with the reality right. that this has happened. It just adds extra mental anguish on top of what's already, you know, you know, painful physically and inconvenient. Right. But to feel the amount of support that we had immediately from truckers stopping blocking the road so we wouldn't get hit by cars behind us, to, you know, to the ambulance, to the, the, the medical care, to the, the pouring out of love and support. Ted had his, his iPhone, and, and so in, e, in the ER, he, he Facebooked. And so there was this ton of love coming through, you know, through the virtual reality, way before I even knew it was happening. Yeah. Um, and then people, and I mean people from that area that were that were part of the motorcycle cross country trip were there immediately. Mm-hmm. People came every day to help us. They drove us back to Spokane. People here were ready with um, food for us every day. People brought food and cleaned the house. I mean, and you were able to enjoy that instead of being, you know, in your head and and still being upset about how it it thwarted your your uh, you know your plans or your and yeah. whatever things you had in mind, the way f- the future should have looked. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Yes. And, and that's a big example, but it happens every day. We think something, a day is going to go a certain way, and then, you know, there's some, something that sideswipes it. It's like, but this is it. So my overarching questions in practice, whether it's in vivo practice or in vitro, is what's happening and what is needed now? Right. Instead of how is it supposed to be? This isn't what's supposed to happen. That's just dukkha. Right. That's dukkha. Yeah. And to be able to, re- to know that I have the capacity now, the freedom to choose, do I want to go down that? As soon as I notice I'm going down that, that mental train, I can get off. Right. I can get off. So there's, there's an element of also accepting that everything is temporary and impermanent. And then there's also something where you, you're getting comfortable with uncertainty, where you're getting, getting comfortable with not knowing, not being attached to outcomes and things like that. Maybe 
you have an example of, of not knowing and how you get more familiar with that? Well, I think the, um, the practice in the, to practice with setting intention, to say, this is what I'm noticing, and this is what my day is, what's ahead for me. And I can set my intention to, to tap into or to cultivate or to access the particular inner qualities that I think I'm going to need in response to what's happening. And then to realize that there's great value in that. And then to realize there's a letting go of what is actually going to happen. What is that next phone call going to be? What is going to happen here in the house? What's going to break? I'm here by myself right now because Ted's tending to his mother who's in hospice. Mm -hmm. So it's like you don't know what the next thing is that's going to break. So there's a kind of way of, of getting comfortable with the uncertainty. I say the balance between feeling a sense of, of um, groundedness and stability in the capacity to respond as opposed to feeling some sense of security that things are going to be a certain way externally. Mm-hmm. It's coming back again and again to how do I and how how do I recognize when I'm not in alignment with that? Because then I'm I'm frustrated and I'm impatient, and then I think, how does that feel? It doesn't feel good. So what's leading to it? It's, you know, it's like what's happening and what's needed now to come back into um, kind of um, attunement with you know the three characteristics, the three, three characteristics of impermanence. You know, mm-hmm. this is all changing and flexing and flow. That dukkha is when I hold on because I want it to be a certain way, or I push away because I don't want it to be a certain way. And for those who not don't know what dukkha is, maybe. Well, dukkha as um, well, the translation into English is always a little messy. Suffering is one of them, but it's dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. discontentment, and the recognition that this is is shifting and changing, and that if I try to hold on, you know, one of the analogies is rope burn. You know, if if a rope is moving, like life is moving, and I'm trying to hold on and control it, it hurts. Mm-hmm. So if I let go, if I realize that if I could go back, come back into kind of a, a flow with what's happening, I may not like it, but then that's just a preference. Right. You know, it's just a preference. Can I notice, this is unpleasant. This is so unpleasant. And have been working actually recently with, again, with um, what's called on-the-spot tongue len in working with pleasant and unpleasant experience, very helpful, just realizing when there is unpleasant experience that I can notice unpleasant, and then I can sense, ah, others experience this too. It's not just me. I don't have to personalize it. I don't have mm-hmm. to make it all about me. That I can let it open me up to the human condition. Same boat, shared humanity. Others are experiencing this physical pain, or this frustration, or this disappointment. Or this anxiety, or this sorrow, and the same way with with pleasant experience arising. It's like, oh, this feels really good. Whether it's this, the warmth or the taste of this, or the enjoyment of having this conversation with you right now, mm-hmm. may others experience that. Rather than holding on to something pleasant and kind of hoarding it and thinking it's mine, it's like, I wish for others to have the opportunity right now to feel what I'm feeling. Through their own circumstances, their own conditions. Yeah. So to want to share, even in the moment of experiencing pleasantness, to wish it for others. And have you noticed that your relationship with the world and, and other people has changed 
from you know the time you were you had your uh, your addiction experience to nowadays well in, in the broad brush when you say with everything i think of how i realize the the sameness or the similarity that everyone you know has a desire to be happy to be productive to love, to be loved, to be of service, to be able to give, um, and that we have so many things that get in the way of that. We all do from our conditioning. So in that sense, we're we're all in the same boat. And so, in and I try to remember that because it's not like I don't have the capacity to otherize, you know, other, you know, see, feel different than other people or judge other people or it's not like that doesn't arise in me but I feel like we know that kind of suffering and if we can let the suffering they've experienced link us together mm-hmm. that to feel like other people feel like this and how can I both serve and savor in this world how can I serve the world and how can I also enjoy it because I kind of I know how to work but Learning to play has been something. So I look to other people to see how do they enjoy their life? What are they doing that brings them um, really true happiness? As well as just sort of fun. And so in that way, trying to link myself to the whole human condition, knowing that we all have our measure of sorrow, we all have our measure of suffering, and we all have the gifts that we're bringing to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so at one point you must have realized you wanted to give back because you are now a teacher, right? Yes. Um, yeah, and that's actually, I didn't, I didn't have any inclination to teach the Dharma. Um, I had just graduated from, in 2000, I was involved with Tara and, and her Sangha, and being of service in that Sangha and practicing in that Sangha. And when I finished in, 19, in 2001 my um, doctoral degree in clinical psychology, um, and I also stopped working for NCW because I was going to start working with people in a private practice. She she asked me. She said, "Do you have any, you know Do you have any interest in teaching?" And I said, "Oh my gosh, I don't want to have to. I just finished this dissertation. I don't want to have to study anything. I just want to practice. I want to live. I want to share what I know with people from the point of view of psychology and um, that kind of support." Um, and she said, okay, so continued to, to do that. And then like a year later or so, she asked me again. She said, so do you have any interest in teaching? And I said, you know, I could now. I feel like I'm ready. I needed some respite from needing to be responsible for mm-hmm. learning anything new, you know, and for, and so um, I said, yeah. And so I started teaching in increments in IMCW with other teachers. And then... Um, she um, talked with Jack about me joining, or sort of nominating me to, to um, be part of the upcoming um, teacher training, the Spirit Rock Insight Meditation, IMS, Insight Meditation Society. Um, Joseph there and Jack at Spirit Rock, they combined and for the first time and did a, teacher tra- a four-year teacher training that I entered in 2006. Wow. And so um, during that time, there was different forms of teaching with IMCW and 
um, sitting in on things on other retreats and starting to teach. And do you find uh, with the students that you now have had for a few years, what kind of struggles do you see with your students? And how do you work with that? Sure, sure. Um, well, there's two, there's the, the students here in Spokane, um, which I've been working since, actually since the motorcycle accident, I really, you know, that's put the brakes on everything. So I had to really determine what do I, what, what do I really want to do from this point out when I can start doing that again? And what I decided was, rather than doing an open class, which I've been doing for several years, I wanted to see if there was a group of experienced practitioners who wanted to work together. So that is in place, and we're in the second year of that here. So the same group meeting together with a particular set of teachings and practices. So deepening, deepening Sangha, deepening a relationship with me as a teacher, um, and deepening their practice and their study. So with, and then the other is teaching retreats at other places. And in those, like Spirit Rock or IMS or Cloud Mountain, and those, or teen retreats, which were really a blast. I've taken, I'm taking this year off from those, but, you know, it's like, how do you, how did to work with people who I see for a short period of time? You know, like a week, two weeks, you know, some, you know, short period of time. Mm -hmm. And then they dissipate. Now there may be contact after that. And then how do I work with a, a group of students who are right here and who are, um, who know each other and so that that deepening can happen? And so the easiest way to respond to your question is more through this group of people here because I see them ongoing. I have right. retreats here and day longs and classes and individual time with them. And every, everybody, to one degree or the other, is struggling with what is practice and what are the relationship of practice. And I have a very, um, mm, well, you quoted at the beginning of one of your podcasts the, the, one of the, the quote from the um, Kalama Sutta, the I.E. Pasuko, the come see for yourself right. uh, mandate. You know, don't believe your elders simply because they're your elders or don't believe anything simply because it's been written and don't believe because it's been going on forever and ever and ever. Right. But, but take it on through analysis and observation. Really, really practice and yeah. contemplate and reflect and then see if those contemplations and reflections and practices lead to well-being and non-suffering, non-harm, or if they lead to harm. And if they lead to harm, don't do them. Right. They're Verify with your own experience. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's my, it's, it's like you have to see for yourself. And so I ask people when they're questioning their practice, well, what is practice to you? I always introduce in vitro and in vivo. You know, the idea that you need to sit somewhere in stillness for a certain amount of minutes per day as a, as a kind of dictate um, I think is, you know, come see for yourself. I don't think that that is the only way to practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't believe that that's the only way. I don't see that as the only way of using time in practice that, that bears fruit. So I ask them, what is it that you're really wanting in your life? And how have your practices so far, when they're questioning, produced that or not? Can you open the lens? Can you open the horizon to consider what is it you really want? What's your motivation? What's your 
what's your North Star here? And then I can help you to with various different forms of practice to see and to try them out and find out. So you have to be able to, I say to them, you know, what do you want? And what do you know so far that helps you activate that in yourself? And then where is there, where are there obstacles? And we can work with the obstacles. We can work with how to develop other practices. And I do a lot of support and encouragement. And then I also ask the hard questions. Like, why are you doing that? Or why aren't you doing that? It's not like, oh, it's all going to be fine. Just do whatever you want. It's like, no, you, if you want to be accountable for your life and you're hiring me, so to speak, or you're inviting me to be part of that, then I'll have to also ask challenging questions or the difficult questions. Well, and, and isn't it also true that the more in touch you are with that why of why you go to practice, the more likely that you'll stay committed to a practice? Because it's not just some... Oh, you know, today I'm practicing because, you know, I'm angry or, and the next day, oh, I feel this or that. It's, that's a little bit more on the surface, but there's always, isn't there usually something much deeper going on with, with a student while they come to practice? Yes. And, and being able to articulate that and finding the way that they articulate it as opposed to, um, you know, words are so odd, you know, it's like to say, so what is true happiness for you? If you want to be happy, what does that mean? Well, happiness doesn't work for me. Happiness, that term, it's like, but to be content, that's what I really want. I want a, a sense of contentment or ease or openness in life. Okay, so use those words. Now, mm -hmm. what leads to that? Notice that in your life. Just notice when you feel that way and when you don't feel that way. So it isn't, it's, it's how to take what they know about themselves and their life and then see how the, these particular forms of practice can support the wholesome mind states, right? that which they're noticing is wholesome, and that can intervene in the unwholesome mind states that are good interventions when they are in states of mind and body and heart that are not congruent with what they're most wanting for themselves and for their life. Mm -hmm. So it's a very kind of, um, again, it's what's happening and what's needed now approach. Right. And for them to be flexible and spontaneous and to remember, you know, you can always start again. Don't worry. So what that you didn't practice yesterday? So what that you didn't practice all week? So what? That's them. Start again. Pause. Feel into your intention, what matters to you. And then have a, a practice, particular practice in mind that you then can rely on. Mm-hmm. So it isn't like, well, now I feel this, I'll do that. Well, no, I feel this, I'll do that. There, that. To know that, especially initially, it's better to keep it simple. Yeah. In time, you'll develop practices, and then you will be able to pull. Like if I wake up in the morning, and I go through my gratitude practice, and I go through my embodiment practice, and I'm really chitchy, you know, chitchy is my word for like, you know, irritated, obsessing about something going on with somebody, worried about something that's going to happen today, and I and I cannot with with a, a mindful presence or with metta like help dissolve that then I'll sit down and I'll do um, a Tibetan practice of demon feeding I want to directly encounter that the demon being that which is in the way of liberation of a sense of contentment or ease um, of seeing the truth then I'll do it a, a demon feeding practice that's a very formal practice because that's what I, if I'm going to be able to progress with the day, 
I'm going to need to, to turn toward this. And everything, given the adequate attention, um, will transform into its wisdom nature. And so the demon transforms into an ally. So right. that same energy gets unbounded and, 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 and appears as something that can actually be, it actually is helpful and supportive. Yeah, so this turning something that seemed like a demon into an ally, so you harness and transform that energy into something that benefits the day then. Yes, yeah. Now, I wouldn't necessarily do that every day. Like I don't, every day I don't do Qigong practice, but most days I do, you know, depending on how much time I have in the morning. Mm -hmm. I always do, there's, I was just contemplating this morning. I start practicing when I wake up. I, don't, I just practice before I get out of bed. Yeah. And part of that was from the accident because I was in bed a lot. So it was like, if I have to wait until I can get up and change my posture, remember there are four postures that are perfectly legitimate for enlightenment and one of them is lying down. <laughs> yeah. So starts before I get out of bed. And then during the day, are there a few a few more tips that you would tell your students to take with them, you know, whether that's driving to the store or waiting in line or, I don't know, being cut off in traffic or something that might run into a, an average day of somebody that they can bring a, a practice into? Yes, this is what I would call that the this in vivo practice, which is in really inviting people to pick for a week um, a specific daily activity that they're willing to um, use as a practice time. So it could be, you know, walking to the car, getting in the car, starting the car, and in the driving, there's just the driving. So a very fundamental um, recognition, not with the, you know, don't put the radio on. And then to notice, it's a, it's a bit of an embodied samadhi practice in the sense that notice how much you know, notice when you leave, when you're already at work, when you've already somewhere else, when you're thinking about something else, and just use the actual physical sensations of driving the car. To bring you back to, to the now. To, yeah, 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 and just notice, and, and to know that this is, this is strengthening the muscle of presence, or the mm -hmm. muscle of sati, of remembering, like keep in mind that you're driving, right? And then mm -hmm. bring the alertness that's necessary, and the ardency, there has to be a certain kind of you know, stick to itness right. in in the in the practice, and to but to make that be to have something that you're paying attention. It could be the two minutes of brushing your teeth. It could be washing the dishes. But to actually pick something that you're using as a way of noticing, being actually embodied and present with what is happening right now and what you're doing right now, and then noticing the shifting. Driving is a great one because we're so often lost in thought. It's amazing right. we don't run into each other more often. It is amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, we multita you know, there's a multitasking that's going on. Maybe a little bit of autopilot sometimes. And, yes. Yeah. So it could be to choose something specifically. And then the other is to, do, to recognize that in the transitions between activities, because most of us have different things we're doing, and there's a transition piece. We either move to someplace else, or we go to a different project, or whatever it is that we're doing or we go to lunch, is to notice, to, to bring mindfulness to the transitions. Right. Like, what's that like? I'm sh and I'm, I'm shifting it. How do I feel in my body? Can I take some deep breaths? Can I pause? Mm -hmm. As well as when something really, you know, something big erupts internally. And again, this could be pleasant or unpleasant. 
you know, I really encourage people to work with the on-the-spot Tom Glenn so that you can let the, the vicissitudes of the day be something that connects you to the web of life as opposed to, to shutting you down or needing to hoard what is, feels good or needing to push away or feel um, you know, personalize, personalizing some arising of uh, unpleasantness that happens. Yeah, and that's usually kind of like a contraction in the body or something, the, the, mm-hmm. the way it manifests itself in the body, right? Yes. So, and, and for those people who are very oriented in their body, because not everybody is, you know, embodied presence is not, does not come easy. Coming into the body, for a lot of people, does not come right. easily. So right. it's in steps. So for those that are, you know, that are very embodied, it's like really being aware of, of the body and the breath, wherever mm-hmm. they are. Like, let that, let that be the frame of reference for for the day. What's my body feeling like? Checking back in. Um, for others, it may be more the mood to the frame of reference. Just to notice your mood, particularly if people have a tendency toward um, strong moods or, you know, or even a tendency if they're trying to, to work with the loss of someone. Then notice what sorrow feels like. Notice when it arises. And then can you offer what is needed? You know, a hand on the heart or a couple of deep breaths or realizing this is really hard. I'm so missing that person right now. Then pause and see if you can sit with that. Right. Yeah, so there's definitely acknowledging it, but not not necessarily pushing it away, but also not getting hooked by it. Yeah, especially if you're in the middle of a day. You know, most of us can't pause and sit and, you know, do a demon feeding or, you know, but at, what are we, what is, you know, what's happening and what's needed right now? How can I be with this life inside of me or around me with what I value with presence, with loving kindness, with open heartedness, with curiosity, including what the anger that's arising in me because someone has done something that hurts me, that mm-hmm. I feel hurt by, or I feel frightened by. How do I stay present with that? Right. And, and, and we uh, have plenty of opportunities all day long. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, you know we'll, we'll have plenty of opportunities to practice uh, no matter what lifetime we're in. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can just tell a little bit about how people can find you on the web. Well, one of the things that takes up much of my um, my working day is that I do work with students and clients um, via Skype. You know, like we're doing now on Skype or by telephone, and. Oftentimes, so if people are interested, because you asked them how they could get in touch with me, I do have a website, and it's um, www.mainstream-mindfulness.com. The short version is because Spokane isn't very big. If you if you Google Dory D O R I and Spokane and meditation, you'll find me. Yeah, and I'll um, put links on the, the website, okay. too, the show notes. What we'll have on there is also the, the kind of work I do, which I call interactive reflection, as well as supporting people's meditation practice. And actually, that kind of, um, the, there is like this thing often. Some people will start with wanting to work with meditation practice, but because what comes into our meditation is our life and our relationships, and our difficulties and our history is that there is often a weave between working with material that's coming up with the practices and um, helping people to 
um, really use the practices and apply them to all kinds of different life circumstances that are arising. Right. Um, and then there's retreats. I have retreats here in Spokane. That people small retreats. I like teaching like 15, 16 people retreats. And then on my website is also um, other retreats that I'm teaching. I'll be at Spirit Rock later this year for a metro retreat. So, and I'm I'm very um, open to speaking with people about um, if there's any ways that are working together might serve them. Great. And then your teachers are Tara Brock and. Yes, so Tara Brock, definitely, um, and Jack Cornfield. And they've both written books, uh, so people can look that up, too, if they oh, like your... Yeah, yes, they're, 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 their books are beautiful, as are their Dharma talks. You know, mm -hmm. you can link to their Dharma talks through dharmaseed.org. Um, um, and also, <clears throat> another um, teacher that I consider a teacher of mine is Lama Sultram Alioni. And she is a Tibetan Buddhist teacher who has a center called Tara Mandala in Colorado. And she um, designed the demon feeding practice and studied with her. Um, and, the, and is very oriented toward this uh, um, sacred feminine in Buddhism and has some beautiful writings about that as well. Yeah, and just and just so we end on that note, do you um, maybe you can explain that the sacred feminine is that something that's come into Buddhism more fully in in the in this century, or is it something that still needs work in terms of uh, integrating? Well, there's a lot more being written about the sacred fem feminine in the Theravadan tradition, um, and more action being taken. It, it actually, very recently, how Theravadan um, nuns, the Kunis, have left the tradition that is um, because they were not feeling like they were being supported well, and there's a lot that's been written about this, but have taken off to, in some ways to be homeless, you know, to, to separate off from the father house, so to speak, and all mm -hmm. the support that comes from that, and have gone out into the world to create um, monasteries and Dharma centers. Uh, especially, not exclusively, but especially for training women monastics. So and you're saying that there's still there still is uh, there's still some branches of Buddhism that don't accept full female ordination or yes yeah so so it's still an issue then in in yes. the Buddhist tradition yeah on that sort of practical human being level and and there's a lot of action that's being taken. Uh, you know, Ajahn Tanasanti has been working with this a lot. Um, Aya Tataloka, um, these are women that I also consider um, more recently um, acquired teachers of mine. And I'm, I have a deep bow of gratitude for them for living that life, you know, separating off and, and living the life that, that they want um, and bringing Buddhism more directly um, and Buddhist monastic life more available. To women, run by women, as opposed mm -hmm. to being run by men. But that, but there's also just a sense of this. For me, the sacred feminine is, is a a way of relating to the world that that honors um, a variance of vision, honors diversity, inclusivity. That realizes that relationships, how we live in this world, our reverence for life, the sila aspect, of course, of Buddhism, um, is 
is paramount. And that we may not be as brilliant as we might want to be. We may not have exactly the right thing to say, but the energy with which we bring ourselves to relationships, the honoring of each other, the caring for each other, um, is part of what I'm calling the sacred feminine. Isn't isn't not um, part of the sacred masculine as well, in terms of being able to, in the Tibetan tradition, that sacred masculine is compassion. It's skillful means. Mm-hmm. So it's like the to not get caught in too much of a dualistic description. Right. But that but that the honoring of the earth, the honoring of those people who um, are not part of the mainstream, you know, who are not part of the dominant culture. You know, we are coming out of a uh, patriarchal age, and um, it's, so it's a balancing. It's it's kind of rebalancing the scales. So those values that come that you might say under the heading of the sacred feminine, um, that we're we're acknowledging them and living from them yeah. more directly. Yeah, and from my perspective, if you repress any group, it hurts all of us. You know, it just it's it's not like you say it's not balanced to have to uh, to have uh, to create these hierarchies, and that's not even the, the spirit of Buddhism of realizing total equality. But there's no room or position from which to judge another or value judge another group of people. And he was pretty radical in, in offering the teachings to everyone. Right. That I mean, he did have to be asked three times to, to let women ordain, and after the third time he had to say yes. So, well, I mean, but, that, but that, that, that he was saying, you don't have to be a Brahmin. You don't have to be someone special. Yeah. You know, you, and these teachings are available to you as a monastic, as a as a householder, there's no barrier to who can be enlightened. Right. And that was pretty radical for that time in India. Very radical. It still is radical. <laughs> it still is radical, right. <laughs> We're still trying to realize that. Yes. There's there's one thing between uh, having a moment of, of, of understanding and another uh, actually implementing that in every daily life and in, in everything. Indeed. Yeah. It's our challenge. Yeah. I hope we're all up for it because this world needs this. Right. Needs you know the the willingness to to be you know radically um, responsive to right. what's to what is needed. And you've definitely uh, done your part <laughs> today. So I, I want to thank you so much for for doing this. Pleasure. May this be a benefit. It's my deepest wish. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dory Langevin. If you would like to find out more about her and all the things she mentioned in in this interview, then please go to meditationfreedom.com slash 10. And I'll have all the links there and I'll have a summary of the interview. Well, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And uh, I also wanted to mention thank you to the couple of people who uh, left a review on Stitcher, which is just now also hosting the podcast for people that want to listen to the show using Stitcher. So thank you so much, Michelle and Susan from Idaho, from Hauser Lake, Idaho. Thanks so much for leaving those reviews. I really appreciate that. And please also, if you feel like it, leave a little comment or something to let me know what you thought of this podcast, this particular episode. And I, other than that, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week or rest of the day. Thank you so much and take care. 
Thank you so much for joining us on the Meditation Freedom Podcast, where meditation meets daily life.